Welcome to Lost in the Movies. This episode covers the film The Prestige, part of a Christopher Nolan focus in a season where we're focusing on several films by different directors. So we already covered Jane Campion and Darren Aronofsky. The last episode of this podcast was on The Wrestler. So now we're shifting for the last couple months of this season to a focus on Christopher Nolan. Before we get to the podcast itself, just want to share the work I've been up to elsewhere on Twin Peaks Cinema. I launched a new miniseries, Traumatic Transformations. Uh, this podcast feed, the most recent episode, is Belladonna of Sadness, Japanese animated film from the 70s. On YouTube, I published Twin Peaks Conversations Number 9, audio with Twin Peaks fanatic writer Maya McBriar, talking about being a fan of Twin Peaks in the past decade and the work she's done on her site, on other sites, and in a book. And uh, that conversation continues on Patreon for the $5 a month tier. About half of it is a Patreon exclusive. So part two of Twin Peaks Conversations with Maya McBriar on Patreon. And then for the dollar a month Patreon, I published my bonus episode of podcast episode Lost in the Movies number 90, listener feedback. Twin Peaks subjects include Sleeping Beauty Connections, Was the Return a Passion Project, Firewalk with Me's Subversion of Intent, Ironic versus Sincere Responses, Cooper's Identity in Flux, and more, plus a Snow White and Sleeping Beauty archive reading of an essay where I discuss those two films together since I discuss, or rather a reader discusses, Sleeping Beauty and its connections to Twin Peaks, so thought that would be a good tie-in there. I also started a new reward for that tier, where uh, in all tiers, $5 a month gets it as well, where I preview a month ahead of time the post that I'm going to be publishing my Twin Peaks character series. This is beginning in late May. It's continuing something I began in 2017, where I covered characters from the old series. Each one got like a full-length entry where I talk about their journey as a character throughout the series. I talk about uh, what they tell us about Twin Peaks. I go through the events of the episodes, kind of organize it in a story format with dates of when the things happen. There's lots of screenshots of the episodes they're in, their best line, their best episode, etc., etc., Uh, It was really fun to deal with uh, the characters in this way, and now I'm going to update it for the return and also finally get to the top characters, which I wasn't able to at that time. So the way this works for patrons is a month before the episode's going to be, or the, it's not a podcast, it's a written uh, series, so before the post goes up on my site, uh, they get that uh, full post ahead of time. So right now, what's up on Patreon is Twin Peaks Character Series Intro and Minor Characters Exclusive Advance and Twin Peaks Character Series 30 Runners Up from Season 3 Exclusive Advance. In both cases, you have uh, smaller entries, just capsules, a roundup of capsules on characters who are there very briefly so they don't get a full entry the way the other characters do. On my site, I also posted a status update notification of that Twin Peaks character series previews begin on Patreon. And for my archive, I published chapter 40, Winter is for Wrapping Up. These are This is how I organize my full archive of material into sort of chapters, time periods where I focused on certain things or completed certain endeavors and so forth. So this covers January through April 2022, that period, and little discussion of what was going on, what brought me to put that stuff out there and all of that, organize the material that way. So that's it for the updates. I'm going to share a fair amount of listener feedback, unusual amount really, and uh, also some further, some of my own further thoughts on Christopher Nolan, a coda of several minutes where I talk about uh, his work uh, before we uh, move on to preview what the next episode is going to be. So stay tuned for that as well. These episodes, this and the next one, of course, were recorded way back in 2018 when I was just starting my patron podcast. So there were some audio issues which you may hear here hopefully they're 
okay? And uh, uh, there may be references to things that, like, you know, made sense in 2018. But, uh, and, and also the good thing about that is I got feedback after these episodes that I'm going to be able to share in this episode because now, you know, when I'm releasing this, I've, I've got the episode and the feedback uh, all together, basically. Every great magic trick consists of three acts. The first act is called the pledge. The magician shows you something ordinary, but of course, it probably isn't. The second act is called the turn. He's obsessed with discovering your method. The magician makes this ordinary something do something extraordinary. Huh. Now you're looking for the secret, but you won't find it. That's why there's a third act called the prestige. This is the part with the twists and turns. Where lives hang in the balance. Julie, come on. And you see something shocking you've never seen before. The Prestige chronicles the rivalry between two magicians, Angier and Borden. Angier is played by Hugh Jackman and Borden is played by Christian Bale. It takes place in Victorian England and it's full of twists and turns and very unusual story elements that combine in interesting ways. It crosses over at times just a little bit into different sort of genres and, and manages to pull it off, I think. Most interestingly, it includes Nikola Tesla, who was the famous inventor in the 19th century who was a rival of Edison. And in the film, he's played by David Bowie. And uh, Angier, at one point, travels to Colorado to this town that uh, Tesla has uh, basically paid to provide electricity for. And this is a time when very few places were electrified, certainly not to that extent. And uh, he provides electricity for the whole town as long as he can use the grid for experiments at certain points. So Andrew goes there to find out the source of a magic trick that Borden has been performing. But there's more to the story on, on both ends, um, which we'll discuss in a moment you know, than meets the eye. This is a film, I think it's, its primary just visceral appeal is really to the intellect for the most part. It's, it's a fun puzzle to try and figure out. As you're watching it, there's clues, something more is going on. And I, I think it's a pretty satisfying payoff at the end of the film uh, on several levels. There's, there's not just sort of one big twist or reveal. There's a lot of different things going on. And if you sort of pay attention throughout, there's just clues dispersed everywhere. So if you like that sort of thing, this is definitely right up right up your alley. Uh, there's also a really nice atmosphere in the film. I mean, it's hard to go wrong with Victorian England to begin with, just sort of a picturesque uh, a time, as long as you capture it well. And I think Nolan does a very uh, creative job doing so. I read up a little bit on the production afterwards, just Wikipedia and stuff, and it was interesting to hear that almost all of it was shot in Los Angeles, um, often on locations that they dressed up to look like 19th century London. So that's a pretty impressive feat. It was done between uh, Batman Begins and The Dark Knight, so he was working on these big-budget movies, but this was uh, sort of a smaller, tighter production. Uh, it was actually shot within, I think, less than three months, although the script was worked on over five years between uh, Christopher Nolan and his brother Jonathan, who co-writes most of his films. So the film's Interesting, not just because of the twists and the atmosphere, but because it brings in these different elements and kind of plays them off each other in a fun way. The biggest, most notable one being Nikola Tesla, the inventor who was a rival of Edison, developed alternating current, a celebrated figure, especially in, I would say, recent decades, sort of made a comeback in the public imagination in a way. 
you know, the cars are named after him and everything like that. And he's played by David Bowie, which never hurts. I mean, so that's a really fun aspect of the movie, just the strange eccentric out in the wilds of uh, Colorado, the snowy environment that makes a marked contrast uh, to London. Angier, the magician, goes off to uh, find him there because he's following clues in Borden's diary. That's another fun aspect of this film is the two magicians trying to figure each other out to a certain extent. Much more Angier trying to figure out Borden. Borden's a little more aloof and uh, dismissive at Angier. When I was watching the film today, I realized I remembered about halfway through one of the big twists at the end. Um, although there were other developments that as they happened, I was like, oh yeah, that's right. So I hadn't seen the film in 10 years and I really forgotten almost all of it. So at this point, I'm going to tell you if you haven't watched the film, skip ahead to the next segment. It's all going to be in the show notes on the Patreon page, the time codes and everything like that. From this point onward, we're going to discuss spoilers for The Prestige. Now, the big twist at the end of The Prestige is we learn that Borden is actually two people. He's twin brothers, and he's been that way all his life. He didn't tell anybody, um, but you can see it in various storylines, the fact that at certain times he seems to be in love with one woman, at certain some other times another. He has swings in his personality. And, of course, his big trick is the teleporting man in which he appears to just instantly appear on the other side of the stage and that's the trick that drives Angier's nuts he just has to find out how he does it ends up stealing his diary burying his assistant who's actually one of the two Bordens in disguise which they don't realize come very close to actually exposing Borden's uh, secrets but they're so misdirected that they don't even you know think to pull off the guy's obviously fake facial hair that's one of the big twists at the end but along the way Angier goes to Colorado meets Tesla and ends up finding out a way to actually teleport himself but there's a twist to that as well and the twist to that is that when he teleports himself he does appear in a different place but the original version of him does not disappear so there's now two versions of him and we learn in the very very end of the film that he kills that other version in fact the uh, conceit of his stage show is he teleports himself elsewhere, but he drops the other version of himself into a vat of water, and he drowns inside that. And at this point, I, I realize I've forgotten to mention the initiation of their rivalry, which is that when they were both assistants, uh, Borden was tying the knots on Angier's wife's hands as she drops into this tank of water and then escapes. And one night uh, he ties the knot in a certain way, she can't escape, and she ends up drowning. And of course that creates the hatred between them. And then over time one of them breaks the other one's fingers, one of them ruins the other's stage debut, and just on and on and on. They keep doing these petty things to one another, although the initial act was very much a grand tragedy. Uh, not just a petty humiliation. At the end of the film, though, it's Angier now who's dropping people into this water and drowning them, and it's and on purpose, and the, the people he's dropping are other versions of himself. So that opens up a whole other can of worms, which the film doesn't really address because it's a, a twist that's only revealed near the ending. The book that it's based on apparently actually does make that that question of who are these duplicates? Are they, um, you know, just now new people created from the same cloth or is it a sort of a split consciousness in the film uh angier does say the terror was you know he would go into the teleportation and he wouldn't know where he would end up would he drop into the water or would he appear on the other side of the theater where he pops up and surprises everyone so that suggests that there's sort of a straight line of consciousness going from 
um, one to the other. But th th there's really so many questions like, okay, so what about the consciousness of the duplicate? Could he end up in the the version that drops into the water? And then what would happen? Would that just be the extinguishment of of his line of thought? Is that even possible? Or I almost don't even don't, don't know how to phrase some of these questions, but they're so compelling. But that's almost a side of the film. I think the main thrust of it is to reveal, in terms of a twist, the main thrust is to reveal that there are two Bordens. And of course, when one of them um, goes to prison and is hanged for the supposed murder of Angier, the other one is now still out in the world and able to reunite with his daughter. And there's also some interesting questions that aren't quite addressed there. Like, for one thing, are they both sleeping with the wife? Like, who's the father of the baby? Do they even know? From an emotional standpoint, the film has occasionally been criticized for really being sort of more about the gimmick than kind of connected with the characters. But there are some interesting games that the film plays with your sympathies. I think for most of the film, you're more or less inclined to be sympathetic with Angier. He's a little more relatable. He's kind of the underdog. I mean, not really. He has more resources than Borden does, but he's also clearly not quite as naturally gifted as a magician. So he has to work hard. And of course, he lost his wife to Borden, which doesn't exactly endear you to, you know, his rival. But I think, Eventually, your sympathy kind of shifts away from it, especially after he brings Tesla's device back to London and becomes this very polished, cold uh, magician who's pulling off these big tricks. And as you start to realize that Borden really was framed in a way, or at least a Patsy, um, when they discovered the body in the tank below, your sympathy starts to shift more towards him. And he's got a daughter that now he's going to be separated from. Or, you know, even after you realize there's there's twins there, you sort of feel for him more than Angier, who starts to become almost a monster in a way. So, so that's interesting. Now, at the very end of the film, though, I think they both come off as sociopaths. The scene where they're confronting each other and uh, sort of revealing each other's conceits as one of them is dying. And neither of them really seems like they've properly ingested this trauma that they're embedded in. Uh, maybe Angier, to a certain extent, uh, he does seem somewhat shaken by the fact that he's had to kill all these doubles of himself. At the same time, though, he just framed an innocent man, got him hanged, has killed all these people, even if they're him. He's not exactly sympathetic. And then uh, Borden has lost his brother. He is uh, has all this reason to be angry, but he's almost sort of smug as he explains the trick. I'm fairly confident that the one alive at the end of the film, I think you can sort of tell the twins apart. I think the one of the alive at the end of the film was the one who actually was in love with the wife, you know, was maybe a little bit more uh, likable in some way or, or human. Although, of course, both of them flirt with her uh, because when one of them, you know, when she when she closes her door on one, the other one appears in the room. It just occurred to me now that that was the, the twins. Even from the beginning of their courtship, both brothers are involved. A fun meta aspect of this movie is, you know, this idea of these two brothers who work together, even though sort of superficially one is getting credit. And of course, that has a kind of behind-the-scenes parallel with Christopher Nolan being the more famous of the two brothers, and yet his brother has co-written most of the films, and I think did the bulk of the writing in The Prestige, although, you know, accounts seem to vary on that. The Prestige actually is an adaptation. It's adapted from a novel by Christopher Priest. The novel itself is definitely twisty and clever and mind-bending, and <laughs> you can tell that because one of the pull quotes on the cover is from the author John Fowles, 
who wrote The Magus. And if you've read that, anything that he's willing to compliment as a mindbender is going to really be that way. Now, the novel has some interesting differences from the film. I almost kind of regret reading the description of it because it would be kind of fun to discover this on my own. But uh, I'll throw it out there for anybody who's interested in knowing the differences. They do follow the same basic concept. Uh, there's twin Bordens, and Jir does uh, gets a teleportation machi- machine from um tesla i almost said bowie that aspect's the same but it seems to explore it in a more meditative way Uh, the angier aspect in particular you find out about and then the story keeps going and there's actually one double of him a duplicate that's produced that uh, survives i'm not sure if he kills most of them or not that wasn't clear from the description but there's one duplicate who survives and he's growing stronger and the other one's growing weaker and then there's uh an idea that he wants to re-enter the body somehow. And there's just a lot of interesting concepts, it sounds like, going on. Now, in the novel, instead of uh, the framing device being these the, the magicians reading each other's diaries, it's actually future generations uh, descended from these magicians reading the diaries. And uh, I think trying to figure out who they are in relation to the magicians, um, one of them might not know or something like that. The book itself is completely epistolary. Uh, if hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly, or mostly, I think, because there are framing devices about the descendants in the present day, but I think it's primarily told through the diary entries. Certainly everything we learn about the magicians is uh, from their own diary entries. The first listener feedback I want to share is responding to my questions or thoughts about the machines, the transporting machines in this film. One of my patrons, Jeff, uh, commented on my site and left the following feedback about Christopher Nolan. The situation with the machine and the prestige is as follows, I think. He is split into two people, each an exact copy of the original with a continuity of memory and consciousness. So when he's about to switch the device on, he knows he will experience both outcomes, death and applause. In hindsight, of course, only the version of him that survives each time is able to reflect on his experience. I also received feedback from uh, a relative who had some interesting questions that another patron would eventually respond to. This is from my aunt, Heather. She wrote, I've been thinking about the prestige and why I feel dissatisfied at the end. I feel it's because I didn't buy it that each of the twins didn't know certain information. They talked to each other, discussed their lives and actions. For example, even if one of them didn't know the first time he was asked what knot was used to tie her hands, it seems likely that it would have been discussed at some point after the question was asked, so that the second time it was asked, there would be an answer. I think their actions were contrived, lacked credibility, and we were fraudulently manipulated. There seemed to be a couple of other gaps in the film. That's my two cents. Now, she raises an interesting point, which I was wondering about too. Maybe somebody can answer this. Maybe there's something in the film that does address it. But you know, the idea of, of the one brother saying, oh, I, I don't remember what, what knot I used. It seems very clever in retrospect when we find out there's two different brothers. Oh, that's why he doesn't remember. But is he trying to find a way to protect the secret without lying? I don't know. I'd, I'd like to hear more on that, what other people think, because that did seem like kind of an odd um, bit of a contrivance to me. Here's the other patron's response to uh, what my aunt was kind of wondering about and pushing back on in the film on the subject of this podcast the film subject which was uh, the prestige and interstellar by christopher nolan he says there's a lot to say about the prestige but the thing to remember in terms of your aunt's feedback which was some questions about the plausibility of um 
how a character like wouldn't notice something it says is the scene where Angier and Borden are watching the goldfish bowl trick and then they see the quote weak old man after this is the performance Borden says and part of the point seems to be that the commitment has to be total with no slip-ups if Borden quote doesn't remember something once he can't magically remember it down the road without risking a crack on the facade and finally here are some further thoughts on Christopher Nolan I believe I recorded this as part of either this review or the next one that I'm going to share, and then it just was a bit too much of a tangent, so I cut it out but shared it later, so now I'm going to share it here uh, for the public as well. There were a lot of films around 99 and 2000 which were really popular with people my age. I was definitely right square in the center of the demographic that these films were, were looking for, you know. That said, though, these films tended to sort of frustrate me and sometimes underwhelm me. I, I generally liked most of them okay, but they just... They weren't really what I was looking for for movies. So these films were like Fight Club, um, Three Kings, the David O. Russell movie in Iraq, um, The Matrix, and I would put Memento in that category as well. And they're all very heady films, very sort of uh, conceptual films first and foremost. And often I felt that they were missing some sort of humanism. I sometimes couldn't quite put my finger on it. It just was sort of... Uh, annoyed with their um, influence, even in the cases where I liked the films quite a bit. Sometimes I was disappointed by some of these uh, movies, but even even the ones that I really liked a lot sometimes felt sort of hollow to me. Both Prestige and Interstellar uh, I do like quite a bit. I think they're probably my favorite Christopher Nolan movies, but I've always sort of seesawed back and forth with some of his work. So Memento, for example, uh, I remember it actually physically made my head hurt when I watched it. It just didn't didn't quite jibe with me. You know, it was an interesting idea, but um, I, I didn't find the, you know, emotional hook at all compelling. And that's something that I don't think he had any illusions about people being particularly moved by this guy's backstory. It was just sort of a plot device to do the idea of telling a story backwards and give it some kind of dramatic weight. But I found that to be a pattern with a lot of his movies. I just I never found the pathos convincing at all. It seemed like it was there, sort of a rote thing. Um, and he was much more interested in sort of the puzzles and the structural games he was playing. So on the other hand, though, then I saw Insomnia, which was definitely not one of his more acclaimed films. A lot of people prefer the, um, I think it's the Swedish film. Um, and actually, Kevin B. Lee, the video essayist, made a really interesting video essay comparing the camera styles of... Uh, the original Insomnia to Nolan's version and showing how the originals has sort of these steadier, longer takes and Nolan chops the image up a lot, cuts more. It's, it's really much more of a conventional Hollywood film in that way, which is also another issue that I sometimes have with Nolan is for a director with his stature and in many ways um, a quite original filmmaker, I just... I don't find him very compelling at all as a visual stylist. He seems to sort of fall back on a lot of the conventional tropes, lots of close-ups, some sort of shaky handheld camera work. Um, you can see it a lot in the Dark Knight films, which are very interesting, compelling in many ways, but, but not particularly that aesthetic. Now, that said, I remember liking Insomnia quite a bit, feeling somewhat engrossed with it, and if, and that he if thinking that he um, exploited the Alaskan setting quite well. And so that sort of started off the seesaw. Then I did not like Batman Begins, found it very disappointing, but I was really fascinated with The Dark Knight. 
And then Dark Knight Rises, I was fascinated with it, but also had to roll my eyes a little bit at some of the things it was trying to do, especially its sort of muddled political message. I actually wrote a whole piece about that, which I'll link in the in the show notes, focusing on that aspect of the movie. But I always really appreciated the fact that Christopher Nolan would go out of his way to make these movies with these sort of heady, ambitious hooks at a time when most people were just sticking, well, most filmmakers with the sort of budgets that he had access to and um, the exposure that he had were sticking to like all these adaptations of much more famous works where they almost had to be deferential to those works, working with on those forms or just going to the margins and doing something there. So that's definitely worthy of respect. And um, I genuinely like what he brings to these films. I think maybe primarily as a writer, um, more so than as a director with him and his brother, Jonathan. That's it for this episode. We will continue with this theme next month, wrapping up the season of director couplets, I guess you could call them. Although there was a trio of films for Aronofsky. Uh, We're going to continue with Christopher Nolan with the film Interstellar. To break barriers. To reach for the stars. 76, you are go. To make the unknown known. 